This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Join me, if you would please, in the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Tonight we're going to consider the last nine verses of this chapter and ask some important questions about the purpose of our lives and why we do what we do. And we're going to consider the subject of ministry, perhaps from a little bit of a different perspective than you have before. And we're going to look at some principles that we considered last time as we were together in the book of Colossians, as well as some truths that we were challenged with this morning. But I'd like us to join together in a word of prayer before we turn our attention to these subjects. Our Father, we are very aware tonight that in us, in our flesh, dwells no good thing. And we can accomplish nothing worthwhile in our flesh, whether speaking or listening, and in giving attention to your word. But Father, as your spirit takes control of what is said, of what is heard, and of what goes on in each heart, great and everlasting and lasting things can be done. And we ask that your word would do its work tonight. May you help each of us to be willing vessels in your hands, to be moldable to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I dare say that if you were to approach a kid's soccer team at a game, and you were to ask them, why are you on the team? You'd probably get a variety of answers. Uh, you might have some who would say they're there because they have fun kicking a ball around. Uh, you might have some who would say that they're there for the snack after the game. Uh, you might have some who would say that they're there for the cool uniform and, and the, uh, the spiky shoes. And you might have some who would say, I don't know. I have no idea why I'm here. And that would not surprise us if we were talking to kids, right? But if you were to approach a member of the U.S. men's soccer team and ask them, why are you on this team? And they were to reply, well, let me tell you. You see those red and blue jerseys? They're just super rad. I mean, look at me. Don't I look really good? And those long socks, I just love those things. And these cleats, I mean, I look great. Why wouldn't I want to be on this team? Well, I think we realize there's a problem. This guy doesn't get it. If you were putting together a team, you wouldn't want people who were there just to hang out or uh, just to get some physical exercise or to wear cool uniforms. You would want players who were there to win. It matters that they understand why they're wearing a jersey, why they're out on that field. When someone's part of something, but they don't really understand why they're there, that's a problem. So I want to ask you tonight, why are you here? Why, I don't just mean why did you come to a Sunday evening service at Good News Baptist Church on August 14th. I mean, why are you a part of the team? If you claim to be a Christian, and I dare say that most or all of the people in this room do, why are you a Christian? What are you doing here? What is your purpose? Why are you called upon to be a part of a church? Why are you on the team? And Colossians 1 gives us what ought to be our answer to that question. Last time we looked at the person of Jesus Christ. We considered his character and his work. And Paul talks here in these verses about the fact that Jesus, by his death, accomplished the work of reconciliation. We talked about that last time. He accomplished that work, making friends of God out of the enemies of God. Through Christ's death, reconciling us to himself. So why did he do that? Well, Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22 tell us, And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, 
Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. I don't know if you thought about this before, but before Jesus died on the cross, there was no such thing as a Christian. Yes, there were those who believed in God. There were those who were assured that they would live eternally with God. But strictly speaking, there were no Christians. To put it one way, Christ's sacrifice created a new invention, the Christian. And anytime somebody invents something, we ask the question, why did you do that? What's it for? What is it supposed to be accomplishing? What do you want to do with this? And Paul gives us that here in Colossians 1. We see God's intent. Paul tells us that Christ did what he did, that work of reconciliation, in order to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Those, are, those terms refer to something that is sacred, something that is set apart to God, something that is without flaw or unblemished, something that cannot be accused, that's irreproachable. So Christ accomplished the work of reconciliation in order to create something for himself that would be pure, without reproach, set apart completely to him. That's what he was doing when he did the work of reconciliation. When my wife and I bought our house, before we moved in any of our belongings, we went in and cleaned. So we swept, we wiped out cupboards and crevices, uh, we cleaned mirrors, windows, appliances. We went through and we tried to clean everything. Why would we do that? Well, because we were getting ready to move in. This is our house now, and we're going to be spending a lot of time with that house. And so we cared about what state it was in. We wanted it to be clean. And, of course, it stayed just that clean all, all this time. <laughs> but someone on our street recently put their house on the market. And uh, they've clearly been doing some cleaning from time to time. And a new uh, load of things will be put on the side of the road that they're getting rid of as they're cleaning that house out, uh, getting ready to sell it. How much cleaning do they have to do? I don't know. How, what is the state of their house right now? How much more do they need to do to get it clean? Uh, would I be willing to live in the house in the state that it's in? I don't know the answer to those questions, and honestly, I don't care. Because it's not my house, and I don't have any plans of making it my house. So I don't care what state it's in. I don't, I don't care whether or not it's clean to my standards or not. When Christ did the work of reconciliation, he was making to himself a people. And he said, these are my people. They belong to me. And I am going to be spending eternity with them. And so I care what state they're in. I care about the cleanliness. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, Jesus did this work to make to himself a people. And he's doing this work now of cleaning them up and getting them ready for eternity. In Ephesians 5, 25 and 27, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Christ's desire is to prepare his people to be presented to himself. He's making of his church something for eternity. He's cleansing, he's sanctifying in the life of each believer individually and in the church collectively in order to purify to himself a church that will eternally dwell with him. That's God's intent for the redeemed. So Paul says Jesus did this work of reconciliation in order to 
make you holy and clean and, and pure in his sight. But there is an if here. If you look at uh, what Paul says in verse 23, following up from what he just said in verses 21 and 22, he says, this is going to happen. This, this work of, of purification is being done if you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. So Paul is saying Christ is doing the work of sanctifying his church. He's doing the work of preparing his church for eternity but that's only going to happen if you continue in the faith and you keep the hope of the gospel. He means that the conviction you have about who God is and what God desires, you need to keep that. They've placed their faith in Christ at salvation, but he said that's not the stopping point of your faith. Because of the gospel, they have hope. They, they can look forward to an eternity with God. But that doesn't just, that, that, that one moment, I have hope of eternity with Christ and then it's done. He says, no, you have to continue in those things. If God is going to do his work of purification and preparation, then you have to continue strong, firm in the faith, that hope being unshakable. Paul realizes that God is doing that work in these believers in Colossae. And he wants them to realize that. He wants them to get on board with that fact that God is doing this work of sanctification and purification in his people. Paul wants them to understand God's intent for them. And he's writing this letter to help them to see that fact and to challenge them about how their lives are lining up with God's intent for them. And we'll see as we continue on in this book that some of the areas specifically where he challenges them that way. But I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself tonight, does God's intent for me match up with my own intent for myself? So these things that we see here in verses 21 and 22, that he's, he's reconciled in us in order to present us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. That's his intent. Is that my intent for my life? Does God's purpose for me line up with my purpose for me? Are those two things one and the same? There's an empty lot not far from my house near some other businesses. And when I pass by, I'm curious to see if anything has happened. Uh, and eventually, I'm sure someone will buy it and something new will go up. But let's say that one day I'm, I'm passing by and I see that construction is getting ready to begin. There's a sign for a construction company. I see some equipment um, and uh, I decide to stop by and see what's up. And so I approach a group of guys. They're talking and pointing. They're clearly planning something. And I ask them, uh, so what you got going on here? Well, we're getting ready to break ground on some new construction. Okay, good. What are you building? Well, I'm not really sure. Uh, the buyers said they haven't decided yet. Uh, they're still talking to investors. They're not sure what it will end up being, but they want us to go ahead and start building. Now, I'm no expert in either business or construction, but I know that that would be a catastrophic uh, scenario. You can't start building something without being clear on its intent. It's going to be different depending on whether it's a playground or a gas station or a Walmart or a water tower. It's going to make a difference. But imagine you've got the owner and the builder and the owner says, I intend for this to be built on that property. And the builder says, well, I intend for this to be built on that property. And they're at odds with each other that project is not going to succeed. It's not going to be too long before things come to a head. It is an issue when there's not an agreement on intent. God has voiced his intent for you. 
Are you on board with that intent? The work that you're putting in, does that back up God's intent for you? Or does it contradict it? So that's God's intent as expressed here for these Christians in Colossae and for Christians in all time. But let's consider another theme in these verses. And that is my effort. As Paul continues here, speaking of himself, he says in verse 24, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Now, before we get any more specific with this, consider with me the level of Paul's commitment. The wording that he uses here. He is clearly, strongly committed to a cause. His commitment is great enough that he rejoices in suffering for that purpose. He's willing, he's even eager to dive right into affliction in the name of furthering this cause. It's a stunning level of commitment, an incredible amount of effort that Paul is putting into this. And when someone is willing to risk their life for something, it tells you a great deal about that person. A quick example, uh, Amelia Earhart, a name that I'm sure most, if not all of you know, she died in her attempt to fly around the world. And history practically worships her for her amount of devotion. And whether or not you consider her cause worth her sacrifice, there's no doubting her commitment. And I would argue the same is true here about Paul. Paul is willing to risk his life. And that causes us to stop and ask, what for? What is it that matters so much to Paul that he's putting in that kind of effort, effort making that kind of a sacrifice? Well, Paul calls himself a minister twice in this passage. Once in verse 23 and once in verse 25. And I think that those references help us to understand what Paul is doing all of this for. I think as we look at his references to being a minister, it unlocks our understanding of, of what it is that's so important to him, what he is putting his effort into. Now, when you see the word minister, think of an errand boy. Somebody who is just there to accomplish menial tasks for someone else. Uh, when I was in college, I worked as a server for a while. And uh, just like my stint at Chick-fil-A in high school, it taught me a lot about human nature. Um, and I'm thankful to God that I'm, I didn't become a, uh, a jaded person because of it. But some people treat their waiter or waitress uh, like an errand boy. There's this attitude that you are here to do uh, whatever it is that I want you to do, and um, you are somehow on a different level of humanity. And so let me just send you off to do whatever it is, and I don't need to show any respect or deference to you. And um, I think we've all been in situations where someone has treated someone else that way whether it's been someone treating us that way or someone else. And we see them uh, not showing respect towards someone else, treating them as less important, treating them like they're there just to serve them. And I don't know about you, but my blood boils when that happens, when somebody else is, is talking down to somebody that way. And, and I don't want to be treated that way myself. Uh, I... I want to stand up for myself whenever someone starts to talk to me that way. But here as you think about these verses, you look at what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I am voluntarily placing myself in that position. Most of us, as soon as somebody stops showing us the respect that we think we deserve, uh, we are going to, we're going to fight back. Paul is saying, I am willing I, I am stepping into the position of the errand boy. I am putting myself at the service of others. I am making myself a menial servant. I'm putting myself in a position of humility and subjugation. What is he doing this for? Why is he willing to take this step? 
Well, in verse 23, he tells us he is a minister of the gospel. He is a gospel servant. He's obedient to the gospel. He's sharing it freely. He's making it known throughout his part of the world. One of the reasons he's willing to humble himself and willing to suffer is for the sake of the gospel. And he talks about that in his letters. He talks about that in Philippians 1. The fact that these things are happening to him, but he knows it's for the furtherance of the gospel. He's willing to make those sacrifices because that's what's being accomplished through his life. You need read very little of Paul's writing to know that the gospel was central to his life. He's already expressed his joy in this letter of Colossians that through Epaphras, the gospel has come to the people there in Colossae and it's done its work in their lives. So he is, he says, I'm a minister of the gospel. I am willing to serve. I'm willing to be in that position of, of humbleness for the sake of the gospel. But what else? Verse 25, he tells us he's a minister of the church. He is a servant to Christ's body. Here in verse 24, he's expressing his joy in suffering as he carries out his duty as the church's servant. He's doing this for Christ's body's sake, which is the church. This is Paul's commitment. A servant of the gospel. A servant of the church. He's working in a place of humility for the furtherance of the gospel and for the good of Christ's body. So this is where Paul is putting his effort. These are the things that are important to him. He is pouring himself into the gospel going out and into serving and helping Christ's body. That's Paul's effort. That's what he's putting himself into. Now I want to back up um, to verse 23 and read through to verse 27. And I want, as we look at these verses and, and continue on in the passage, to notice where Paul's work comes from. So you say, did he just decide... I look at all the causes in the world and I think that the gospel and the church, those will be the great causes of my life. And he just kind of picks them and now he has his direction. Well, no, look at what he says here. Backing up to verse 23. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of his, this majesty among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So did you notice what he said about where his work came from, where the job came from? In verse 25, he said that he is a minister or a servant according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you. And we all understand the concept of dispensation. When I approach the paper towel dispenser in the bathroom and I wave to it, I expect dispensation. <laughs> at, at its very basic, that's the idea, all right? The giving out of something, okay? That's what a dispenser is for, all right? Dispensation is that he's saying, this is something that's been given to me. But it carries with it more weight than that. It also has the idea of a stewardship. So there's, there's some, some concern from the one giving about what it's given for. The paper towel dispenser doesn't care what I do with that paper towel. But Paul is saying this is a stewardship given to me by God. He, has, he is placing it in my care. But he sees his ministry, he sees his work as something given to him specifically by God. 
His job as Paul the Apostle is a God-given job. His work, though it's not separate from the work of others, is unique to himself. It is something that was given specifically to him by God. To him, Paul, as an individual. In other words, Paul is working hard. He's making sacrifices. He's going out of his way to be a servant. But in all of it, where are his eyes pointed? Is he looking at himself for acknowledgement? For glory? Is he looking out at others for a sign that he's making a difference? Well, not primarily. He's looking up to the head. And this goes back to what we considered last time. Christ, the head of the church. He's the one who gives us the orders. He's the one who's making it all work together. And Paul's saying, he's the one who gave me the work. He's why I'm doing this. He gave me this stewardship. And so I'm carrying out this work. I'm putting my effort in for that reason. Now, we're going to bring this all together here. But before we move on, I want to consider the question, where is my effort going? What is it that I work really hard for? What is it that inspires sacrifice in me? Is it some self-promoting venture? Is it some area where my heart is touched for the plight of others around me? Or is it at heart the dispensation of God? Something he has brought into my life. An area where I know he wants me to serve. What am I putting my effort into? And where is the motivation for that effort coming from? Is it coming from inside me? Is it coming from out there? Or is it coming from him? It's really important for us to get this settled. Because if we don't, if we're not straight on what we're putting our effort to into and why, then we're not going to be able to bring this together. We're not going to be able to get to the crux of all this, the meeting place of God's intent and my effort. And that meeting place is ministry. Paul's writing is so good, um, the way that he weaves ideas together. But one thing that's really hard with Paul is to jump right in the middle of what he's saying and try to make any sense of it. So what I want us to do is back all the way up back to verse 21 and just read straight through from verse 21 to verse 29. And I hope that you'll see as we go through this, these themes, God's intent, Paul's effort, and to get those things coming together in ministry. Verse 21, and you that were sometimes, at some time alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So there's God's intent. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister. So we're seeing Paul's effort here according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, we're seeing a reference to God's intent in these people, what he's wanting to bring bring to fruit in their lives whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom again here's Paul's effort that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus God's intent whereunto I also labor 
striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Do you see that? Paul says, I'm sharing the gospel. I'm serving the church. I'm preaching Christ. I'm warning. I'm teaching. And all for what purpose? That we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Everything Paul is working like crazy for. And the thing that, what he's going to be giving his life for in the end is worth it. But why? Well, because he's serving the intent of God. He's not just working hard at a good cause. He's working hard at God's purpose. He's working hard at what God is bringing to pass. He's working hard at what matters to the Lord. So Paul tells us, Jesus saved you for this purpose. To gather together his church, to purify and sanctify his church, to prepare us to be with him forever. So that involves the gospel going out, people getting saved and coming to Christ. That involves Christians getting to know the Lord and growing in their faith and becoming more and more like Christ, being purified. He says that's what Christ is doing. That's why he has the church. That's what he's wanting to do in the church. And Paul says that's his purpose and I'm working for that same purpose. That's where this letter fits in. Paul takes the time to sit down and and address this church. Why? Because he wants to see God's intent accomplished in the church at Colossae. That's ministry. When my effort, my work, meets God's intent, The definition of ministry is, in a way, both broad and narrow. So, on the one side, it's broad. There are many ways that we can be engaged in this work. We can be engaged in accomplishing God's intent. It involves evangelism and discipleship. It can look like door-to-door visitation. It can look like being bold enough to broach the topic of eternal and spiritual things with a neighbor or a family member. It can look like two Christian friends meeting together for encouragement. It can look like a Christian parent faithfully disciplining and patiently teaching their children. It can take place on church property or off church property. It can take place during service times or at other times. It includes a myriad of things. We, we don't have time to touch on it all, nor would it be helpful to try to expound on all that ministry could be and what ministry can look like. But if I'm working towards God's goal of saving sinners, of purifying and preparing his church for eternity, then that is ministry. And that makes for a broad definition, and that's exciting. We can serve God's purpose in hundreds of ways. In fact, it could be argued that genuine ministry will never look exactly the same from one individual to the next. And again, that's the beauty of the body of Christ. Because he says, this is my great purpose, and I have all these ways that you as my people are going to serve that great purpose. So there's a broadness to what ministry can be and what it ought to be and what it looks like. But while ministry encompasses many things, it also excludes many things. Ministry excludes involvement in spiritual things for the sake of self-promotion. It excludes doing something just out of guilt or peer pressure. It excludes teaching a class or helping a widow or calling a friend or making a visit just because it's the thing that you do or it's the thing you're expected to do. That's because true ministry must be properly motivated. It's got to go back to God's intent. 
Is that what's driving me? Because if it's not, it's not ministry. Now, when I use the phrase, your ministry, what comes to mind for you? Well, maybe you struggle to think of anything. Maybe you would think of a specific thing that happens here uh, at this property each week. Or maybe you think of people that you have some sort of contact with on a regular basis. The question we all need to ask ourselves is this. Is what I'm considering my ministry really ministry? And here are two questions that I, I want to ask myself and I encourage you to ask yourself as well. Does it serve God's intent? Is it something that is helping people prepare for eternity? Either by bringing them face to face with their need for a savior or by helping them to be holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in God's sight. Does it serve God's intent? And secondly, where did it come from? I'm not saying that you should expect a voice from heaven, but is your ministry God-given? What I mean by that is, did you pick this area of ministry because it sounded easy or fun or it got you off the hook or it seemed like an opportunity for self-improvement or... Are you engaged in it because you believe this is God's way for me to use my time, my energy, and my ability to accomplish his purpose? Where did my ministry come from? Am I doing this motivated by a desire for God's purposes to be accomplished? And is this something God has brought into my life? Is this something that God is leading me to? Now, as we've considered all of this, perhaps an argument begins to form in your mind, something along these lines. Well, this all sounds good, but this is Paul we're talking about. Uh, Clearly, he had a God-given ministry. I mean, he's the Apostle Paul. He wrote half of the New Testament. Clearly, what he was involved in was something that was directly from God. Uh, Clearly, he was right in the thick of things with helping Christians grow. Um, He was certainly a part of God's purposes, absolutely. But the sorts of things that Paul is doing, preaching and teaching, sharing the gospel and helping people prepare for eternity, those things, God never intended every Christian to be doing that sort of work. You might argue there are those who are specifically gifted by God for that sort of work. There are some people who are gifted for ministry and other people who aren't. Maybe that's an argument in your mind tonight. Maybe that's the way that you've thought about these things. You may think that others, maybe who are more gifted, better in front of people, more gregarious, more comfortable sharing the gospel, they ought to be doing the ministering, and you'll be one of the people getting ministered to. Well, let's take a look at Ephesians 4. Turn there with me if you, if you don't mind. I, I'd love for you to be able to follow along with these verses. Again, it helps, with, especially with Paul's writing, to see it in front of you so you can, you can see what's going on in the text. This morning we spent a little bit of time talking about spiritual gifts. And here in Ephesians 4 is one of the places that Paul addresses the subject of spiritual gifts. I'm going to start in verse 11. He says there, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we see the intent of God. This, this goes back to what we see in, saw in Colossians. All of this is being done, why? So that in the unity of the faith, Christians can become perfect, mature. They can become who God wants them to be, uh, to be 
attaining to the fullness of Christ, becoming Christ-like. But who did he talk about there? You might say, ha-ha, I knew it. Who did he list off at the beginning? He talked about the apostle and the prophet and the evangelist and the pastor and the teacher. Those are the ones who are involved in ministry. You might say, I didn't even know this was a proof text for my position, but now I have a proof text for my position. They are the ones building up the body. Okay, let's go on. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So let me ask you, is it just the apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers who he is saying here are designed by God to be lending their effort to the intent of God? No, it's the whole body every joint, every part, edifying itself in love. In your life, this intersection of your effort and God's intent ought to be a reality. Ministry is not something that is only tied to those who are teaching and preaching and who are in a position where, where they're paid or it's what they're doing full time. I believe you understand this, but we need to get away from this idea, thinking that ministry is only for ministers. What is a minister again? A servant. How many of us as Christians ought to be servants? And so all of us ought to be finding this playing itself out in our lives, that there are areas in our lives in which we are specifically putting effort into the things that are furthering God's intent for his church, for his people, preparing a people for eternity. This is Plato. Now, if you don't have young children, you may not be as intimately familiar with it as I am. But I think we all understand what it is and what it's for. Uh, Play-Doh is meant to be played with. You can create stuff with it. You can make shapes, and then you can totally destroy them and make a new shape. And it's, it's lots of fun. But the story of the invention of Play-Doh is an interesting one. See, in the middle of the 20th century, there was a company called Qtal. And things were not looking very good for that company because... They were the largest wallpaper cleaner manufacturer in the world. Now, how many of you have wallpaper cleaner at home? Okay, maybe a few of you. All right. But the problem here was they, they had this product, and it served its purpose well. They had produced a putty that was soft, it was easy to shape, and it was intended to get soot out of wallpaper. It was a problem that people had and they needed a product to take care of the problem. The issue for this company was that in the middle of the 20th century, that stopped becoming a problem because people were moving away from using coal to heat their homes, and they were starting to use uh, electricity and gas. And so they have this product, and fewer and fewer people are wanting to buy the product. But there was a teacher who had a family connection to the company, and she had a new idea. And so she decided to test the material on children. Now, that might sound questionable, but <laughs> what I mean is she took this, this product, and she shared it with the children in her class to see what they would think of it. And they loved it because they could shape it and it would, it would stay moldable for a long period of time. 
So they could shape it, they could play with it, and then they could shape it into something else, and they'd put it together, and, and she said, we've got a new use for this. And so was born Play-Doh. Went from being a wallpaper cleaner to a children's plaything. And it's a genius move. It's a fun story. And it's just one of the stories from history of inventions that have been repurposed. And I think we'd all agree that, hey, you take a wallpaper cleaner and you turn it into a toy. If that works, who cares? But if you take a Christian and you redirect his efforts from his God-given intent, if you try to take God's invention and use it for a different purpose, that does matter. And it doesn't work. God created Christians for eternity. And when we start to live for now, we're no longer fulfilling our God-given intent. He wants us to be involved in carrying out his intent. Christ-likeness, readiness for eternity, not just in ourselves, but in the lives of other Christians as well. And in the lives of those who have not yet become Christians when we turn our efforts away from earthly pursuits to join in fulfilling God's intent, that's ministry. And the really beautiful thing about ministry is that ministry is me working alongside God. And as I work alongside God, I experience his power working through me. Paul talked about that in Colossians 1, verse 29. He said, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Tonight as we close, I'd like to challenge us to each in our own hearts make our prayer to God along two lines. First, ask him to reshape our intents, our purposes to help us to line up our purpose with his purpose and that he'll give us the grace to cut anything out of our lives that's not serving his purpose of purification and preparation for eternity. If the great reason that he has us here lines up, I'm sorry, if our great purpose lines up with his great purpose for us, if we see ourselves as being here for the reason he has us here for, then our efforts are naturally going to go towards the right things. If my intent lines up with God's intent, then I'm going to be putting my energy and my work, my effort, into those things that matter. So first, I encourage you to ask him, to reshape your intents, to help your purpose to be his purpose for you. And then secondly, to ask him to show us our areas of ministry. In what specific ways does God want my efforts to be serving his purposes? What does that look like specifically for me? And only God can answer that question. And only God can lead us into that. It may be organized ministry here, or it may be something entirely different. But all of us, before God, ought to be able to point to areas in our lives where our efforts are clearly and intentionally going towards endeavors that further the intent of God. And some of us have freedom to do things that others do not. Some of us have opportunities that others, well, all of us have opportunities that others do not. Some of us have responsibilities that others do not. And this does not need to conflict with those things because we can be doing ministry as we carry those things out. And so I'm praying that God will help us to see this his way to understand his purpose for us and to be putting our energy into that 
All of us work hard at something. The question is, am I working hard at what God wants me to be working hard at? Am I knee deep in what God wants my life to be counting for? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the example of Paul and his commitment to the task you had given him is a challenge to us to think that he would say that he joyed in the sacrifice and the suffering that he was making for you. Because he wasn't looking at it through human eyes. He was seeing it the way that you see it. Something that matters for eternity. Father, help us to understand your purpose for us. Help us understand that all that is happening here on earth is because of what you want to do for all of eternity. That you are shaping us, you are purifying us, you are sanctifying us, preparing us to be with you. And you are working to bring souls to yourself so they can be part of your body. Father, help us to get in line with that purpose. Help us to be pouring our effort, our work, into the things that are going to matter eternally. And Lord, help us all to know specifically in our lives the areas where you want us to be ministering. There are so many things we could put our effort into, and we need your wisdom, your grace to know how you want to use us. But may it be true of us here at Good News Baptist Church that every single believer here is putting their effort into the purposes that serve your intent. Help us there. Guide us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.